Hello and welcome to 15-Minute Medicine, where we try and make medicine as simple as possible, but not simpler than that. I'm Afosa Hanba and I'm joined by my co-host Farai Chigumadzi. And today we have an esteemed guest, Associate Professor Rudzani Muloiwa, who works in the Department of Pediatrics and Child Health at the University of Cape Town, as well as Krutoskia Hospital. He also is one of the key leadership members for Vaccines for Africa. This episode was initially recorded on 11 September 2020. A large part of our discussion revolved around the development of COVID-19 vaccines, which at the present time are widely being rolled out across the world, although some may argue that it's a lot slower in some places than others. Hashtag SA. But overall, it was a very wholesome discussion, and we hope the key takeouts will be of benefit to you, our listeners. So let's get into it. Thank you very much uh, for inviting me, Fosa and uh, Farai. Greatly appreciate it. Hi. Can you just maybe start by telling us a bit of your background? I know you've told all of your students, but not everyone has had the chance, the pleasure of meeting you. Would you maybe just like to give us maybe a one-minute summary of who you are? Uh, it's very simple. I am a rural boy from Limpopo. I was born in what uh, was then Venderland homeland, which is in the Sotbanspet Mountains. I grew up there. I did most of my uh, schooling there. And then um, after high school, I went to study medicine at the University of what is now KwaZulu-Natal. It was the University of Natal. And then after that, I went back to my province, to Limpopo, and eventually made my way to Cape Town to study pediatrics. After pediatrics, Believe it or not, I went back to Limpopo again, and this time I actually stopped working as a pediatrician, and I worked as a medical officer in a rural hospital uh, for about three years before getting a Nelson Mandela scholarship to do public health um, in, at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Came back to the same rural hospital, and then eventually made my way to Cape Town because my wife wanted to study pediatrics in, at Red Cross, so I came down here with her and then I've been here ever since. I've been working in pediatrics, HIV medicine, uh, both uh, pediatrics and adolescent, as well as doing research work in, in vaccines and vaccination with the, uh, the vaccines for Africa. That's basically where I am right now. So I wanted to ask Prof, with your background and your life experiences, did that have any influence in your decision to pursue pediatrics and then later on your interest in vaccinology or what was your what were your influences so to say to be honest with you i'm not i'm not really sure that pediatrics had much to do with my rural upbringing at all you know when i finished uh, my undergraduate degree in what i felt less comfortable in in pediatrics than anywhere than anywhere else in fact, in my final year, I probably was offered the opportunity of registrar posts in different uh, departments. Um, so I went, when I was in Bulugwane, I thought to myself, actually, I'm not very comfortable in, um, in, in, in pediatrics. I'm, I, I, I felt quite comfortable everywhere else. I taught um, a number of the students that belong to Medunsa who used to come to Bulugwane. I taught them medicine. I taught, taught them surgery, ops and gynae, and, and so forth. Then I thought, well, for my com service, I'm going to, I'm 
going to do pediatrics so I can feel comfortable in pediatrics as much as I felt everywhere else. And then, um, and that's what happened. So the department of pediatrics in Pulukwane Mankwing really liked me and I really liked them. So they found a way of keeping me for my whole com service in the same department. And then the following year, they encouraged me and nudged me to, to go to get into a registrar program. And they phoned around and Cape Town was very willing to have me as a, as, as a registrar. And that's what happened, you know. So, yeah. And they, they were very, very good. I mean, I, I really learned a lot from, from uh, Bulukwane. They were really amazing consultants and they, and they had a lot of work, but they really had uh, time for me and for me to grow and learn. I mean, so well was my training there that when I, when I left Cape Town, the, uh, Prof Hartley was in charge of the pediatric program, laughingly said to me, actually, I can tell you now that you were, you were ready to do your final exams the day you arrived. Oh. oh wow that's actually very it's very interesting that you say that because i think especially from for from our perspective me you spoke to me in the force about it just now where we want to go for our comserve and that inevitably leads to the answer why you want to go there and then what are you planning on doing after that i think a lot of us junior doctors want to go to these big metropoles because we told that that's where you'll get a registrar post and also that's where you'll get your good training. But now that you're saying something like you got very, well, you said excellent training actually in Polokwane. Do you think that's something that's still currently going and we just have a negative perception because of small town living or what is that? Well, as far as pediatrics is concerned, I have no doubt that they're still doing the same um, uh, great work. They had the misfortune of losing the... Um, the head of department, Professor Shpadano, passed away a couple of months ago, but they have grown that team over, that over the last 20 years. So the issue is when you go to any place, it's not always so much the geography as much as the people who actually are there to mentor you. That is the issue. You know, I've got an old mentor from Canada who always insists that when you go to university, you should not be measuring on a course, you should be measuring on a, on a professor because who mentors you is usually what matters most than in what field you are being mentored. Um, and um, believe it or not, the reason why I ended up staying in pediatrics than I was gonna be a physician. So I was gonna go into internal medicine more likely. The difference that between those two fields um, was simply who was there to mentor me, if that mm. makes sense. So I chose mentorship, not so much the, the, the subject. Um, and that's pretty much what happens. So I think wherever you go for your comm service, two things. One is how do you make the most of that space? Wherever you are, I, I, I've never really found myself in a space where there's not enough scope for doing good and growing and learning in that space. It just helps a lot if you've got a good mentor who, who teaches you much more than anything else to be human than necessarily to be a technician. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we definitely agree. <laughs> we agree. 100%. And then, so that's the story with pediatrics. And with the vaccines, how did you get involved with vaccines for Africa? Say, same thing. So I, I was in pediatrics and um, Professor uh, uh, Greg Hussey mm. uh, has already in vaccinology for the last, I don't know how many decades it's been there. 
Um, and so I had a chat with him previously about uh, any potential for, um, you know, PhD opportunities and, and so forth. And then one day we were having a pediatrics, uh, um, you know, celebration meeting. We always have these meetings where registrars who have done exams are celebrated after they've passed exams. And he was there because he's been affiliated all these years with the Department of Pediatrics. And him and um, the, the my head of department then, Prof. Zah, were having a chat. And then he said, oh, yeah, we've just found some uh, money uh, for doing a research project. So he, he says, Ruth, will you be interested in this? So they came together and said, we'll supervise you for your PhD if you, if you want to do this. And so this was in Petasus. So by being involved with that research work in Petasus, I then, um, uh, it became my entry into, into vaccinology as a vaccine preventable infection. As you may very well know, uh, how you measure vaccine coverage is essentially by seeing how many children get um, three doses of DPT, diphtheria, petasus, and tetanus vaccine, mm. uh, which means vaccination against petasus is actually the, the gold standard for how you vaccinate children, full stop. So that's essentially how I got involved in that. So after that, I I, I, I got more and more immersed into the rest of the other vaccines and the work that happens in vaccinology. I spent a year doing a fellowship in infectious diseases um, and so forth, which just kind of um, uh, further entrenched me into vaccine preventable infections by doing so. Um, and then, and, but I loved uh, immunization and vaccinology in particular because they are very foundational to, to, to child health and, and public health in general as well. And so that's essentially what happened. That's how I, I moved into, into vaccine preventable um, infections and therefore immunization. I think Again, of the mentors who were involved in that area. I think it was maybe in third year when you gave us a lecture, was third year or fourth year when you gave us a lecture on, the diff on vaccines, our introduction to vaccines. And you I think it must, have been fifth year, it must have been your fifth year seminar in immunization, I think. Fifth year. I think that's that so. too late. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a while. <laughs> but you asked Quite us the while. difference between immunization and vaccination. And I still own, like, I'm not completely 100% on board with the concept yet. But uh, it's fine. Because of COVID-19, we have to read about that now. Mm. That uh, brings us to the next part. How yeah. has the how's 20, the past six months of 2020 been going with this pandemic, which you know as COVID-19? Has it affected your work in general life in a significant way? Yeah, definitely. I mean, for me, it's been, it's, it has really had a huge impact. Remember, at the time that the, the first um, cases started appearing in South Africa, and we, the university had to shut down. Uh, well, let's say not so much shut down. Initially, the plan was to bring the, um, the holidays, the Easter holidays early so that mm -hmm. students can go home in preparation for what we didn't know was going to happen. At that time, I was actually the acting deputy dean for undergraduates because um, uh, Prof. Um, uh, Gonda Perez had retired and the new deputy dean had not yet come because she was saving um, a notice where she was working before. So I had to be the um, acting deputy dean over that time period. And so it, it really meant starting to figure out 
with the, the new dean, uh, uh, Professor Green Thompson, a way of um, uh, approaching together with the, with Prof. Uh, Liz Lange and the rest of the, the university executive, a way of, of thinking in this uh, space where we needed to create some online teaching platform and see how we bring everyone on board to contribute to that space so that the students can continue studying. So that's on the UCT side. Um, because on the other side, the services were also getting disrupted at Kuteskir, when we, especially when we went into lockdown five, where suddenly my patients couldn't come for follow-up in the clinics, which is quite critical and crucial for children and adolescents on antiretroviral therapy, because mm. the implications of interrupted service mm. are quite uh, dire. And then as Kuteskir became more and more a COVID hospital in trying to accommodate all these patients coming in, a number of wards were turned into COVID wards, and that also included uh, the pediatrics and adolescent uh, service. So G4 and G5, the two wards um, that you know are just sent to each other, yes. are closed. They are still closed today. So what then happened is that the patients that belong to those wards um, had to be accommodated at the Red Cross Children's Hospital, which is where they are right now. But it's not so easy to kind of, um, you know, create, uh, uh, you know, physical space um, in, another, in another area. So we've been trying to find ways of juggling and maintaining the services that otherwise would have belonged to G4, G5 um, in sort of one would call a borrowed makeshift space. So it has had that kind of impact. Um, I still have my um, um, outpatient clinics at Fruiteskir on Thursdays and, and um, Wednesdays and Thursdays. But, and I do calls uh, through the scare cover and, and Red Cross covering um, and endocrine adolescents and, and pediatrics with my colleagues from the endocrine side. But apart from that, there's still quite an unclear way forward. We're not sure, is the ward going to move permanently to Red Cross? Are we going to go back to through the scare? And so there's still a lot of uncertainty, which has been rather unsettling in some way and disrupting in others, if that makes sense. So yeah, so COVID has had an impact on um, my, my immediate work in, um, as a lecturer here, and as well as a consultant pediatrician. And then um, in the same time, I've been very, very busy in terms of trying to, to contribute in some way to the responses to, to COVID. I mean, um, I don't know if you're aware of this, but I'm in the same, um, in the group that is called the National Advisory Group for Immunization. This is the, uh, there's a group that advises the Ministry of Health in terms of immunization and vaccination practice. That's, and so we've had to deal with a number of things. And some of that is the impact on, um, on and disruption on immunization. We are getting more and more data that shows that the, the lockdowns and, um, and so forth have actually had a huge impact on, um, on children getting access to vaccines. So there are, there are all those things that, that, that are there. And we've met sometimes, including having emergency meetings, um, to try find ways of how we could respond to, to, to that so that um, we can find catch-up uh, programs that are... Um, practical and feasible to each because there's a huge risk that once this um, pandemic ends or that we're going to have outbreaks of you know measles and other and other infections because we've just not been vaccinating over this time period so that's that what part of that secondly um, 
I've had a number of um, interviews on, on radio, vendor radio station, where I had to <laughs> talk about COVID to in a children's program. I think I had two in a children's program. I've had an adult um, normal uh, radio program on talking about COVID, where I had to remember again how to try articulate some of these concepts in my own home language. Yeah, fortunately, I'm, I'm very fortunate in that growing up there and growing up with my grandparents means that I actually speak um, the language quite well. I, uh, in fact, language is my first love before sciences. So that actually sits very comfortable with me. And so I've done that, including some of the recorded stuff that's part of the, um, the strategy of um, giving information to people in terms of that. And then I've had a number of online zoom type conferences and meetings on immunization and vaccinology so that's basically what this space has been like the last couple of months did i talk too long in answering that question no 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 it's fine we have to <laughs> learn and <laughs> and hear what you have to say because we don't have right. i think we still there is still a lack of um open accessible information for us um at this stage yeah all right prof i wanted to ask in terms of vaccines and vaccinology. Now, you've mentioned now the impact that COVID has had on other vaccines in terms of immunization coverage. And now, obviously, there's been, so to say, a massive global undertaking in an effort to try and find a COVID va vaccine. Although vaccines, as you mentioned, quite rightly so earlier on, are the foundation of child health and public health. I don't know if one would say that prior to this pandemic, the concept of vaccines wasn't viewed as the most life-saving interventions that we have. A lot of the time, major life-saving surgeries or medical interventions are glorified more than actually vaccines are. So you could wonder, could maybe say vaccines are a medicine's forgotten hero, but now back in the spotlight. What are your thoughts on that? And now, like with COVID, bringing it, you could say, again, in the spotlight, how that could impact vaccinology in the future? I'll, I'll tell you what, it's quite interesting. I was trying to see if I could find a, a, a slide from, um, from uh, uh, Professor Stanley Plotkin, for example, in terms of what one would think about vaccines. And I realized now that most people are probably not aware of this. Um, you know, Stanley Plotkin, in the introduction to his uh, massive, massive book on vaccines. He says the impact of vaccination on the health of the world's people is hard to exaggerate. With the exception of safe water, no other modality had had such a major if effect on mortality reduction and population growth. That's how important vaccines have been. It's been, apart from the sub su supply of clean water to people, it's been the most impactful public health intervention of the 20th century. That's basically how massive vaccines have been. And if you actually try to figure out um, exactly um, what uh, their impact has, you probably will only will know that, that um, with, they've, they've got huge returns. You basically get 16 as much for every dollar rent that you, oh. you, you invest. It's got huge returns. So, and it's a, maybe um, coronavirus has been very good in allowing people to actually think about the impact of, um, of vaccination and immunization in terms of world health as, as, as we have it. So, and, and I think maybe that is um, one bright uh, silver lining that we can take during this, uh, this time um, of coronavirus. 
I'm not sure if you asked a specific question in terms of um, of coronavirus vaccination and where we see it. What, uh, Foster, what did you say? So yeah, I was asking about your, your views on how it has impacted and what it might be for the future, but that can lead us into how you feel about now the, the, the progress of the developing the coronavirus vaccine, especially given the fact that it's the, the, rate, the rate at which it's being developed or seemingly developed is much faster than normal timelines for developing vaccines. Yeah, well, it, there's no doubt about it in terms of the rates and of, of development. Uh, historically, we've never had a vaccine that would move from trial to basically going into, into clinical use in such a short period of time as we anticipate to happen with the um, uh, coronavirus vaccines. The, I think prior to this, the, the fastest vaccine was the one of Kel Pen, um, uh, Pearl Kendrick, which was um, a DPT that I think took about four to five yeah, years. Four years. Otherwise, it takes about, um, you know, decades, if not decades, in order to be able to move the whole, um, to, from discovery the whole way to, to kind of uh, uh, clinical use, not just clinical trial. So... Remember, but we, you, you should also remember that we were at a slight advantage, and the, that advantage is the fact that um, um, a lot of work had gone into trying to find a vaccine for SARS, SARS-CoV, um, as well as MERS, and these are pretty much cousins to SARS-CoV-2. And um, a lot of those uh, efforts never really reached fruition, partly because um, the kind of the the disease kind of petered out, and remember, you can't really test a vaccine when there's no disease because you need to be able to to vaccinate people and give others maybe a placebo, and then see how they are protected in the context of a disease. So, if when SARS disappeared or MERS disappeared, um, it took away opportunities for actually trialing of these vaccines. But the ideas and the concepts, including the design of those vaccines. Were already in place. So when 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 COVID nineteen hit us, it was possible to dust um, uh, store technologies and get them quickly up to speed and be able to go into you know phase two trials pretty quickly. Um, and uh, a number of administrations were actually quite happy, including the FDA, um, to to accelerate um, the passage of these vaccines to, to like phase three on the basis that um, work had already happened and the underlying concept were essentially the same as what would have happened with the SARS or, or so forth. So that had been an advantage. The second part, I think, has been better considered effort and funding. Remember what's happening right now is unprecedented, where governments are actually uh, investing a lot of resources and money, and there are a number of consortia that are actually involved, including COVEX, which you should look at. We should look up um, sometimes um, in terms of trying to find ways of pulling resources in order to offset the um, research and development costs that are usually a major barrier in terms of how long it takes you to get the vaccine to be produced, and once available, what the cost of actually acquiring that vaccine is. Um, and also allowing companies to be able to take risk, uh, knowing that um, they don't carry the whole risk of a loss in terms of the vaccine not being successful. So as a result of that, I think 
we're probably sitting with more than 260 candidate vaccines right now as we speak that uh, on coronavirus, on COVID-19 specifically. So that's, um, that's quite unprecedented. So yeah, this has uh, basically been a game changer in terms of how we see the world and how we collaborate in terms of getting uh, things done, including pharmaceutical companies um, collaborating together to work on a candidate vaccine, you know. At this point, Prof touches briefly on intellectual property, which is a major topic at the moment because various lower income countries are trying to push for pharmaceutical companies to waive their intellectual property rights to allow for a cheaper production and distribution of COVID-19 vaccines by other countries and entities. Remember when in, in ordinary, normal drug or vaccine production, company A will go out, they will find a potential candidate for a disease, they will take it through its phases, phase one, two, three, show that it's effective, and then they will um, get it registered and they start producing it. They are protected from anyone stealing or taking that intellectual property, and, and they will have to sell it at a price that will be able to offset the costs that went into the development of that vaccine. And, you, and you, this goes into billions of dollars. That's basically what happens. But if, for example, countries come together and then start putting resources into that R&D process, it means the company has not carried that. But part of that, it means that if there are five other companies with the ability to produce that vaccine, let's say it's a live attenuated vaccine, then they can do the same thing, which means then you, are up, you, you kind of um, wrench up your ability to produce sufficient doses for everyone that needs it in the world pretty quickly. But if it's a new technology that is in place, the question is, even if the IP, you know, intellectual property is free, how many entities and how many companies will actually have the ability to be able to use that technology and this new um, um, uh, uh, recently discovered way of making vaccines in their own plants? And, and, and this is where the question comes. It is, it's an important question because, um, uh, as people have, have you've had people mentioning this all the time, and I taught this when I taught you guys about immunization, the issue about um, herd immunity threshold and how much that is dependent on your uh, basic reproduction number and how many people you will need to be immune for you to hit herd immunity threshold. So if you think about it this way, um, if there are 7 billion people in the world who need a vaccine, and, and for COVID-19, the estimates you're gonna need about 60 to maybe 70 to 75% of herd immunity threshold for you to actually have that herd immunity impact into the community. So you can imagine how many doses you need. It's much worse if the vaccine you need does not give you immunity. That's where the issue about vaccination and immunization comes in. If for you to actually be immunized, you need to be vaccinated with more than one dose. That's uh, coming right. Back. It's coming back. So, 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 so this is the issue. So you may actually need not, um, you may need hundreds of millions of doses to actually have a meaningful impact in the world um, if that's what you're trying to achieve, if that makes sense. So this is the, these are the questions that are actually having to be grappled with right now in terms of what the future looks like. I think WHO has come up also trying to see if instead of, let's say, the UK or the US approaching companies and says, look, we'll offset your, your, your R&D costs, um, and, and usually that offsetting translates into what people call um, 
advanced market purchase. So it's almost like you're buying so many units of vaccine, uh, taking a risk that the vaccine will actually work and will be safe and will be the way forward. So you've already purchased it in advance, right? Which again, reduces the risk from the companies that are taking this research work. Because if you do it alone, it's a hit and run, so um, a hit and miss, so to say, because the, the vaccine that you have backed could be the wrong one, not the one that wins the race, right? Whereas if let's say we identify 20 candidate vaccines and we pull our resources into developing all of them so that whichever one wins, we are all shareholders mm -hmm. in that production, it will make a lot of sense. This has not necessarily been the case with all this. Again, look at them and just Google in the news what happens with COVAX and who has agreed to join it and who has not agreed to join it because that has got implications in terms of what happens and who wins and, and, and it does not fully offset the cause that would probably be best approached as a unified front for the whole world. Yeah. Yeah, I think that was... Sorry, I, I, you, you, one could talk the whole day about this. I really, really... <laughs> I'm looking at the time, but it's just impossible. There's more questions that arise yeah. each time. At this point, we touch briefly on adverse events and vaccines which brings to mind the recent concerns about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine and its association with thromboembolic events. In this discussion, we will mention when AstraZeneca's trial was halted temporarily. Well, yes, that's right. The AstraZeneca trial is the one that CEP is involved in. It's, um, the, uh, it was, the vaccine was uh, produced in Oxford, the Oxford vaccine. Yes. Um, the, it, this is quite important what you mentioned in terms of it being halted. You see, um, people have worried about certain things. The, the, the fact that we're trying to produce the vaccine pretty quickly should not make us adopt lower standards of safety, right? And so when a major adverse um, uh, event is identified, that adverse event may not necessarily be due to the vaccine, but if it's happening on a, can, on a participant in that study, you need to start asking yourself whether there's potential that the vaccine, it may be an adverse event of the vaccine. And, and this is key, think about this way. Let us assume you are recruiting 30,000 people into, into a major trial and one person gets this adverse event. If it is somehow due to the vaccine, um, once you start rolling it out to 300 million people, you can imagine if it's, even if it's one in 30, and I think uh, what they've worried about in this case is the transverse myelitis, which is quite, yeah. a, which, you know, it's, a, it's quite a severe adverse event. Now, this may have nothing to do with, uh, with the vaccine itself. It may, be, it may have happened in a person who had not received the vaccine. But you have to kind of keep those standards up. And it's been very, very important because this has never happened before in the history of vaccines that a vaccine already generates anti-vaccine sentiment before it actually comes into the market. So because of the speed at which we're trying to do this, there are fears that people will cut corners in terms of how to get that vaccine into the market, right? Um, and, 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 and it's quite important that... Uh, the, 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 the monitoring board for this vaccine said, stop, something has happened here. Let's go to the bot, get to the bottom of it before we review whether we should continue or whether this is a signal that is significant enough for us to question whether there are enough problems for us to worry about. That's how you do a trial properly under any circumstance. And people have uh, promised um, in all these administrations that um, 
there will be no cutting corners as far as safety is concerned. Vaccines are very special in this respect. Um, you know, when it comes to a drug, when you get a, a drug for a condition, you're already sick with that condition and we're trying to reverse uh, or make you better. When it comes to vaccines, you're giving these things to people who are well with um, a, a uh, hope that they will come across the infection, which you guys have not yet done, for example. And then once they do that, that it will protect them. So you don't want to put people at risk because the vaccine may protect them tomorrow. So the standards are quite high when it comes to vaccines in terms of what you aim for in terms of risk and acceptable risk. That's a fair point, Prof. And I think the anti-vaccine sentiment might also come in the sense of a general mistrust of pharmaceutical companies and, and their in incentives. You know, sometimes a lot of people may view them as like prioritizing profits over safety at, in certain instances. So I think that may also be a consideration into an influence of this anti-vaccine sentiment. But I also wanted to ask about in terms of distribution, like or equity of distribution, like of this vaccine, if we were to get a successful one soon, there's obviously now a massive undertaking and a, a global unified front, so to say, seemingly um, at getting this vaccine out. But we must also still remember how like medicine is not practiced in isolation. Do you think this maybe could be a vehicle to broaden vaccine vaccination coverage for other vaccine preventable diseases because obviously there's parts of africa parts of the world where even the most basic vaccines which should be universally available are still not available maybe this could also be a vehicle to broaden that spectrum that distribution and coverage yep i mean look th these are very very important questions Fosa, and um and and it's what has concerned a number of us just from the outset especially when it comes to low and middle income country settings where for virtually every intervention not just vaccines we always seem to be at the end of the the queue when it comes to whether we get access to any um, um, intervention that improves life and that or that ultimately saves life and so there have been all these questions but that's where as i said to you before look at the COVAX initiative where what it's been attempted here is to pull all the resources together. There are a number of partners, both countries, WHO, Gavi, you know, you know Gavi, right? Um, just go and check Gavi. Gavi has been very instrumental up to now in making the vaccines affordable for poor countries that cannot achieve um, their own vaccine coverage at cost. So they found a way, for example, of, of getting and purchasing vaccines at uh, lower rates in order to be able to distribute them to countries that cannot afford to do so for other vaccines, for normal routine vaccines. Obviously, the prioritization of that will depend on, on burden of disease in those countries, and that is um, and it's distributed in that way. So part of the COVID initiative now is exactly the same thing. There are concerns that um, if um, there are concerns that if we don't think about it properly, that um, all the vaccine doses that are produced, especially if it's, um, the, the doses are quite limited early on, that they may go on into the rich countries that apparently have got the money and they can buy everything out. And, and the risks are huge with respect to that. So it is an important issue, um, um, FOSA. Um, and 
and it's been a concern right from the beginning. CEPI was founded, I think, about three years ago or so. I can't remember, three to four years ago. And part of it was to make sure that if there's an outbreak, an epidemic um, of any form or another, or a pandemic for that matter, like we have right now, that when that, um, that, when that uh, happens, um, the ability to deal with that pandemic should not depend on the affordability of the vaccine uh, by each individual country, especially with the reason for that lack of affordability being directly related to the research and development costs that a company feels they're entitled to recoup um, uh, the losses due to that. I don't, know if that. I don't know if that partly answers your question, but a number of us are thinking and a number of entities have been thinking much more broadly to say exactly how can we best leverage this uh, crisis? How can we put in systems in place that even after COVID, we are prepared for the next outbreak? And how can we put um, infrastructures in place that, for example, will allow us to deliver better and more efficiently routine vaccinations um, that we need for children? So for example, should we be thinking about um, um, uh, improving uh, vaccine manufacturing for Africa, for example. Because remember, if you've got manufacturing happening locally, um, it means the logistics and the infrastructure for delivering them is probably more affordable, it's quicker, and it's, it's, much, it's more agile in terms of responses. But if you put these things in place for COVID, you could use the same infrastructure to be able to better improve the delivery of the other vaccines. Mm -hmm. So, and, and I think that is what you're raising is something that should not be lost at all because it will be a missed opportunity to think about this only as a vertical program, which is basically disease specific. We should be thinking it more broadly as, as putting uh, foundations and infrastructure for a much more horizontal and think about COVID as just one aspect that needs to be tackled, but with the re remaining infrastructure being able to deal with the things, other things going forward. Prof, you, before we spoke again, you also told us that our name 15 minute medicine is essentially redundant because we keep going longer than 15 minutes. The last thing that I would just like to, I don't even, I'm not going to limit and say touch on, but the last item that I would like us to speak about is something that you brought up to me. And I know that you, that other people have also spoken about this, but what do you, what do you make of the concept of a critical mass? What do you mean by that? Because it's something that you've explained to me a few years back. And I just wanted, after some reflection, I just wanted to see if I'm getting the concept or maybe there's something that I still need to go back and revisit. We're talking about critical mass as far as getting some targeted outcome is concerned. So for example, having um, enough people uh, mobilized to deal with a certain thing, whether that is improving rural medicine, whether that is um, having enough mentors that um, a, a certain demography can look up to and, and so forth. Is that what you're talking about? Yes. Well, I mean, look, um, there are people who have worried a lot about this and, um, and invested a lot into making sure it, um, some of these things are done. For example, um, the late Professor Wangani Mayosi, had always worried about us um, having enough researchers because you need to have sufficient people doing that for you to actually have a meaningful impact. It's, um, 
I think he had a concept of a 1,000 PhDs, you know, because by getting those people to do those PhDs, you develop a cadre of researchers that can actually carry um, the frontiers of, um, of science ahead in a meaningful way that impacts positively in the whole population in terms of its health and, and so forth. It just so happened too that um, that critical mass is not enough when it's skewed in terms of demography and geography. And one of the reasons is that if you don't develop your own expertise within a geographical area, no one deals with the problems that you own because they're part of your population and your, and, and your community and your group and so forth. And this is so important because, you know, people talk about uh, decoloniality and, um, and, and so forth. What people don't realize is that the, at times is that this concept is not just a theoretical philosophical one. Um, a decolonized concept include in it the contextualization and worldview and, and reflection of value system and what you value and what are your priorities and so forth. So for example, unless you get enough people who are, who are uh, uh, African uh, doing research, African problems will not be prioritized in terms of research. So you're gonna need enough people and, uh, um, to be able to do so. The question is, what is that critical mass? I'm not sure that I've got a good answer to that. Interesting, this is what happens with, uh, with bacteria. People always talk about, I don't know if you've ever heard of quorum sensing. For some reason, bacteria, once they infect you, they don't seem to start expressing their virulence factors. It's like if you see Proteus on a, on a, on a culture medium, it may look like just colonies on it until it reaches a certain mass. Then it starts changing its pattern. It starts looking like waves, like that's when it swarms. It's almost like something happens at one stage that the bacteria senses that it had reached enough quorum. That's why it's called quorum sensing. And once it reaches that, it changes its characteristics and start becoming virulent and started producing. It's almost like it remains under the radar and it needs some kind of critical mass to meaningfully cause disease um, and, and it's almost the same thing. I mean, probably using a very bad uh, um, example by almost comparing people to, to an infectious agent. But what I'm trying to, to show is that having a critical mass that reaches a certain quorum threshold seems to make a big difference. It reduces fatigue, it creates enough um, comradeship and, and, and a collegial mindset that allows people to be able to pull together with respect to the intended goal. So would you, it's almost like a, a tipping point. I don't know if that would be another yeah, way. Pre precisely, precisely. You, yeah. Okay. No, that's, thank you for just explaining that. So Fawcett, do you have anything else you'd like to ask? Nothing else from my side. Okay. Thank you very much, Professor Muloya. We really, really enjoyed having you. Thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to come and speak to us. We really appreciate it. No, thank you. It was it's always a joy to have these kind of conversations. And thank you so much, Prof. Cheers, man. And thank you to everyone for listening to 15 Minute Medicine. We will try to make medicine as simple as possible, but not simpler than that. If you enjoyed this episode please share it with as many people as you know you can find us on apple podcasts on soundcloud we have pages on facebook and instagram 
and until next time. Thank you.